three, two, one. Welcome to Vistas by WebCheck Security. News, views, and insights into the cybersecurity realm, leadership, and entrepreneurship. Produced by WebCheck Security. My name is Greg Johnson, and I'm your host. Digital transformation, the process of leveraging technology, people, and processes to innovate, requires an all-in, ongoing commitment to improvement. Often, however, Digital transformation requires organizations to give vendors access to their electronic systems and sensitive information, including your personal information. This can lead to disastrous consequences, as was the case last year for thousands of nonprofit organizations whose information was compromised when their data management solutions provider experienced a ransomware attack that exposed customer data. We discuss this and more in a moment with our guest, Romaine Marshall cyber attorney extraordinaire, and a partner at Armstrong Teasdale. Vistas is sponsored by Vivint Smart Home. If you're looking to have the best in security and home automation, then look no further than Vivint Smart Home. They have the best technology for cameras, doorbells, garage sensors, window sensors, thermostats, everything you need all in one app. For world-class security and home automation, call Vivint today at one 800 570-1313. That's right. 1-800-570-1313. Now, Vistas is also honored to be sponsored by Nexus IT, a worry-free, hyper-responsive approach to providing world-class IT support and solutions so leaders can focus on their business. And we'll be talking more about Nexus IT. And now... It is my honest pleasure to introduce a dear friend and colleague, Romaine Marshall. Romaine Marshall, partner at Armstrong Teasdale, helps clients protect their data, businesses, and reputations from cybersecurity and data privacy incidents. He has represented clients in response to hundreds of incidents involving data breaches, ransomware, malware attacks, security misconfigurations, wire fraud, software vulnerabilities, social engineering, and other exploits, and in resulting litigation and regulatory investigations. Romaine is also an experienced business litigator and trial lawyer. He has served as lead counsel in multiple jury and bench trials in business disputes, including claims for breach of contract, breach of fiduciary duty, unfair competition, trade secret misappropriation, negligence, and fraud. As a frequent author and speaker, Romaine develops and directs workshops and training events analyzing digital transformation and emerging technologies such as blockchain, artificial intelligence, the Internet of Things, and their intersections with cybersecurity, data privacy, and other business laws. Romaine, my friend, welcome, and thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Greg. It's, a, it's an honor and pleasure to be here. Um, I, I've been hearing about this podcast. Of course, I know the good work that that you've done for years, and, and I consider you a, a pioneer in in Utah and the region 
when it comes to cybersecurity. So it's my absolute pleasure. Thank you, Greg. <laughs> Thank you, Romain. Too kind, too kind. We go back, don't we? I've really we been looking forward to this podcast. I, I, you know, as I said, as we were preparing for this, Romain, I think the topic today uh, really resonates with many businesses and uh, truly every business needs this. I believe every business has a cybersecurity liability, whether they choose to recognize it or not. Well, let's start today's podcast with your cool accent, man. Tell us about your Maori roots and uh, how you came to live amongst us. Yeah, you bet. So I, I was born and raised uh, in New Zealand. Uh, my, my parents are still there. Uh, also a brother and sister. I have a brother and sister here in the U.S. as well. But we all came to the U.S. primarily for uh, schooling. I came after serving an LDS mission to what was Rick's College, which dates me a little bit. It's now BYU-Idaho. Uh, came here, here on a uh, basketball scholarship. Uh, did that for a little bit. Um, had a good experience there. And then transferred down to BYU and Provo and then also the law school there. Um, so all of my adult life has has been in the U.S., um, but but of course those formative years, those precious years to me, were, were in New Zealand. I, I grew up in kind of small towns, a lot of beach towns, because my father was a school teacher, and so he tra got transferred around a lot. Um, and and so that's a bit about my my background. You mentioned my Maori roots, my that Maori or Maori as it is also pronounced as uh, the local or the natives of New Zealand. They're a Polynesian tribe that hundreds of years ago decided Hawaii was too tropical <laughs> and, uh, and got, on, got on their waka or got on their canoes and, and made their way south. And uh, th those are my people. Fantastic. And uh, for our listeners, uh, Romaine is uh, uh, quite the, the handsome dude of about, I don't know, what are you, 6'3", six, 6'4"? Six, um, yeah. <laughs> he's, uh, the height part you got right, yeah. He played some <laughs> basketball for BYU. Uh, did you play some rugby as well in, uh, in back in the yes. day? Yeah, I played rugby at BYU uh, as a junior and senior and had a great experience with that too. That was something... Uh, every kid in New Zealand grew up playing. So whereas I had a long layoff from playing rugby, um, I actually wasn't good enough to make my high school teams, which which got me interested in, in basketball. Um, so, but after a long layoff, I was able to resume doing that just as an extramural activity down at BYU, and they had a great program and had a good time with that. Well, and didn't they uh, want you to be the captain of the team here? <laughs> I, I was captain for one year. Um, we, we finished that year ranked number two in the nation behind uh, Berkeley at the time. I think just ahead of Stanford, the U was ranked very high at that time also. Uh, then the, the BYU team went on to, to, to win years after I left and became a much more polished program, I'll say that. <laughs> um, but but, but those, are, those are some good times. College is good for academics, of course, but... Also, the extras we get to do. 
Well, and for our listeners, I, I also I feel like your baby brother when I stand next to you. I'm a big guy and I lift weights, but but Romaine kind of dwarfs me, <laughs> both in uh, looks, intelligence, and physicality. <laughs> now you, well, the, the 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 pandemic has helped with the the weight pots. <laughs> <laughs> now you you have uh, you may have mentioned this, uh, um, Romaine, but you have children as well. Tell us a little bit about uh, your family. I do. I, I I only have one son, Elias. He's a great lad. Uh, he's now a freshman in college. Fantastic. Did most most of his schooling here in Utah as a young boy and young man, and is now in, at college in, in California. Great, great. Well, thanks for sharing all that. Um, before we uh, get on to some of the meat of of, uh, of of the show also, tell us about Armstrong Teasdale. Uh, they're relatively a new process. Not they're they're not new in 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 the nation, but they're new in the Salt Lake City area. Uh, so tell us uh, tell us about Armstrong, why they brought you on board here in uh, Salt Lake City, and and then your responsibilities uh, both here and nationally. Yeah, thanks. So Armstrong Teasdale is uh, is a decades, uh, I think it's over a hundred years old law firm that originated and became a, a, a very well established in St. Louis. Uh, and in the last decade, um, they have expanded their presence. They had a lot of large clients that were multinationals, had global presence, had a global presence through those clients, and, and decided to just expand um, nationally and very aggressively in the last two to three years. For instance, they have added a New York, Philadelphia, Boston, Delaware office and then of most recently uh, a salt lake city office which was opened last year by several of my colleagues in or around august september um they've also just recently opened a london office i i joined in january mid-january me and my colleague jose abaca i left our prior firm based on you know just the excitement uh, that was being generated by Armstrong Teasdale in the local market. They're quite well established in Denver. Um, they see Salt Lake as, as a bit of an extension of that office, but also see the great growth that is happening just in Utah, both your county, Utah County, my county and the surrounding counties and just and, and also the tech revolution silicon slopes and all those things and 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 wanted to establish a platform here as well it's, it's been terrific for me these last two months um for the first time in my 20-year lawyer career I'm, I'm i'm the old guy in the office um <laughs> and that that takes some getting used to um but it's it's been terrific i i i think if if i were to pinpoint a major reason for my move it is it is Armstrong Teasdale's dedication to my practice areas, uh, cybersecurity and, and data privacy, and then the the reach they've established through the folks they have in St. Louis, uh, and Denver, and Kansas City, and and the other offices, and then the client base they have that has uh, all the issues I like to deal with and have been dealing with on a day-to-day basis. Fantastic. So it's, it's yeah. Thank so you. they're, they're looking to help you, uh, to have you build out this, uh, or strengthen, uh, their cybersecurity and privacy practice. Correct. That That's correct. And, um, uh, their help and 
the help with me doing that has been instant, instantaneous. They have uh, n- not only really good lawyers who, like me, have been in the weeds for for several years now, but they also have a, a terrific marketing team who help us with the messaging. Because as you know, Greg, a lot of what we do, even though it relates to things that people use every day, namely their computers and their phones, addressing the security and proper use of the data in those things is often abstract and difficult to explain to a layperson, even even to myself. And Mm -hmm. so the marketing team and the the, the members I have, uh, team members I have, are are terrific at that, and I've been able to just kind of latch on to the way they're doing things, and it's been very helpful. Fantastic. Well, it sounds like uh, you got a fun ride ahead of you here. Now, let's start with a simple baseline question. I hear the phrase a lot, Romaine, digital transformation. What does that really mean? What is it referring to, and how does it concern cybersecurity? Yeah, to, to me, it, it, it just in a nutshell, digital transformation is, this, is, is an organization's ongoing commitment to improve themselves. And one of the fundamental ways to do that, given the time we're in, is through technology. And through technology, I'm referring to the digitization of, of basically everything. So the digital transformation refers to, I think you mentioned that at the beginning, that a process or the process of bringing together technology along with business attitudes, cultures, um, people, and existing processes, and bringing that all together to not only stay competitive, but to move things forward based on on other organizations, other businesses, and client needs. It's complex, isn't it? And, and there's a lot of information that uh, <laughs> I just uh, did a post today on LinkedIn um, on a major breach where the controller of uh, California was breached through a phishing attack, Romaine, and guess what they got? Thousands of social security numbers, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it is, it is, it is so complex and such a meaningful part of a organization's existence that even companies we wouldn't typically associate with digital transformation and may not even themselves say, yeah, we're going through a digital transformation, are going through it. For example, a construction company that is sending invoices via a mobile application. Mm-hmm. That is a digital transformation from just mailing something and hoping to get paid within 45 days, as opposed to just digitally sending an invoice and needing to get paid as they drive to the store to pick up materials. That is an example of digital transformation for a construction company. And that application that a construction company may use as part of their platform, as you know, it has inherent risks um, and vulnerabilities relating to security. And so whereas digital transformation is just this massively broad um, concept and and method and um, process that organizations are going through. I, I I'm really just trying to help 
my clients and organizations on that very, very narrow sliver of that entire transformation process that just relates to the legal implications of securing that process and then the obligations. In, in, interesting. That. And and you bring up an interesting point. You take the construction company um, that maybe doesn't view themselves as going through a digital transformation, but they've just started using their mobile phones to do things, to track hours, to send invoices. Now you've got uh, confidential information. You've, you've got finance uh, approvals and things that, oh my gosh, it's, it's vulnerable to attack, right? And, and perhaps... Exactly. Perhaps that company isn't thinking about that uh, and, and they're undergoing a digital transformation and they don't even know it. So let's, uh, let's, let's shift gears here as we set up uh, what will be some, some great discussion in, in the remaining uh, 20 or 30 minutes we have. Um, the pandemic, we have to talk about this for a minute. How has that altered uh, digital transformation and privacy in your view, Romaine, and what have you seen in your practice uh, as a result of uh, this terribly expanded attack surface with employees working from home? Yeah, okay. I'll start with a few data points. And this is taken from a Forbes magazine article, I believe it was last year. Excellent. In or around, in or around October. They made and I pulled three points from that. Cool. Online di- online delivery deliveries have increased or increased in eight weeks in the first eight weeks of the pandemic, um, in the same amount of time that online deliveries had increased over the prior decade. Wow. <laughs> uh, t- telemedicine experienced a tenfold growth in subscribers. In just 15 days during the at the beginning of the pandemic and the ceo of microsoft satya nadella says he or microsoft has seen two years worth of digital transformation in two months that was the first few months of the pandemic for, for 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 me and many of us listening to this um Digital transformation and the pandemic meant working from home, having to set up home offices, and right. our employers and our employers giving us instructions on on security for that virtual private networks um, and the various security uh, elements that came along with that. For me and my practice, um, it surged upwards, uh, and the last quarter of last year was probably one of the busiest quarters of my entire 20 years. My and, goodness. And uh, if not for the, the great teammates I, I had then and have now, I would be, I'd be struggling um, to keep up, frankly. So it, it, for me, it's, it's, it's meant more and more work. And, and, and that the type of work I would say is not so much uh, as reactionary as it has been in the past, my clients uh, and potential clients are more interested now in not reacting but being proactive. So they t- so they may pull something from a headline, for instance, the Microsoft attack, mm-hmm. and say to me, "Okay, Microsoft got attacked. Uh, apparently, there are vulnerabilities on the Exchange server. Tell us what 
we need to know or who you would recommend we talk to mm-hmm. to address that. And I would say someone like, well, this, you, you've got to implement a penetration test into your cybersecurity program after you assess the risk that has been created. I know a guy who does those. Vulnerability. <laughs> really? Who? Can, can, you, can you send me his contact information? Yeah, yeah I'll, I'll send mine I, to you. <laughs> I, 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 I wouldn't know that person if he was right. Actually, I, I'm not the smart guy. It's I, I, I have half a dozen really smart guys that are doing uh, the, the pen testing. But that, that's interesting. So you, you would say um, that maybe the company's recognizance during this pandemic remain of their risk profile has increased? Yes, yes, definitely. I, I think um, certainly they can rip things from the headlines easily enough, but I think there became a heightened awareness just by the fact that they weren't people weren't people weren't in the same location, office wise, and and I think I think prior to the pandemic there was this there was this understanding or belief that okay we're all in this office. And we've got a server room and we've got Jane or, or Joe, our IT guys down the hall, we're secure. And, and and then all of a sudden, everyone's working from home and they're like, well, I can't just call Jane or Joe anymore or just walk down to their, their, their office and say, I got an issue. They're actually someone I have to call or set up a meeting for. And they're not close by, and I think that created this this belief that I'm less secure. When really they were just as as less secure in, in their offices as well. Um, of course, virtual private networks became necessary. Right. Multi-factor authentication became even more necessary. But a lot of those things were set up already in, in our office settings, um, and we're just providing just the same security. There's just there's just this people are more unmoored from what they're used to and a little more concerned about their exposure. Gotcha, gotcha. Well folks, we'll come back to this and more in a minute. WebCheck Security looks to Nexus IT to partner for IT cybersecurity. The world of cybersecurity is extensive, making it difficult to cross all your T's and dot all your I's. Nexus IT provides everything your organization needs, from major penetration testing all the way down to simple email security. We've spent 22 years doing it. Let us cross your T's and dot your I's for you. To find out more, go to www.nexusitc.net. That's N-E-X-U-S-I-T-C.net. Or call them at 435 435- 659-2533. That's 435-659-2533. And we're back with Romaine Marshall of Armstrong Teasdale. Romaine, let's uh, quickly review some of the laws and statutes governing the cyber landscape right now. What would you say is going to have an impact uh, on that landscape in 2021? Um, okay, so so they're they're still, of course, um, having an impact. Will be each state's data breach notification statutes, because th- th- those statutes 
basically say, and they're all different in some ways, mostly minor differences, mm -hmm. but, but they basically all require that an organization that is receiving or involved with data belonging to consumers protect it. And that if, if there is a breach, they notify those um, consumers, those individuals uh, of the breach that has occurred. If, if that breach has exposed or potentially compromised certain data elements, such as social security numbers, driver's yeah. licenses, and financial information. And, and so those data breach notification statutes, uh, you know, first 2003 in California or about that time, and then the last few states enacted theirs in 2018. And some of those are being tweaked every year. Now, would you say that every state has um, uh, a cyber uh, well, a, a privacy uh, law? Well, I would, yes, yes, they do. And uh, those data breach notification statutes, I would, I would include under that broad gotcha. definition. And, and and also, you know, I become a bit of a geek when it comes to how we define or what terms we use to define, you know, our worlds, Greg, and mostly mm -hmm. it's, mm -hmm. it's it, that is informed by just how courts or legislatures do that. And so I, I refer to, you know, there being cybersecurity laws and there being data privacy laws. I consider, um, pri I consider data breach notification laws to be mostly cybersecurity laws because they relate to, you know, um, compromised data and obligations that flow from that. Right. And then there and then there are these emerging or hybrid laws that involve privacy, um, such as data privacy, such as the the fairly new California Consumer Privacy Act. And although there is a privacy component to that, it's predominantly focused on uh, the rights a consumer has in California relating to the data they share with organizations um, and companies they buy stuff from, um, where they work, where they have subscriptions, um, all of that kind of thing. And so there are also federal statutes, of course, around cybersecurity. Um, the FTC will tell you that Section 5 mm -hmm. of the FTC Act which requires um, organizations to implement fair practices and not be deceptive. Um, the FTC would say that also implicates cybersecurity obligations. Oh, interesting. Um, of HIPAA and uh, the healthcare laws has a security rule. Um, there's the Graham Bliley Leach Act for financial institutions that has a safeguards rule that has specific cybersecurity requirements in it too. So there's this real patchwork. There, there is. I, I believe New York, uh, the state of New York also has uh, a pretty significant uh, financial institution law. If you're over several million, uh, a certain threshold in revenue, I forget what that is. It might be 10 million in revenue for fintech companies. Um, they have to uh, validate uh, almost a framework uh, that that regulation provides. And there is a difference, as you know, between frameworks and regulations uh, Romaine. Most of them, uh, HIPAA, for example, 
says, hey, protect it. <laughs> it doesn't get into yeah. specifics, whereas a framework would be NIST or CIS-20. Um, pivot just for a yes. minute. Let's, uh, so California's CCPA, or the uh, California Consumer Privacy Act, that tends to uh, allow organizations to be litigated against for the breach or the um, faulty practices in um, consent or data protection. But by contrast, this new HB 80 um, that just passed in Utah is, is, is almost an inverse of that. It provides an affirmative defense, but there's a big if there, right? Could you tell us, uh, tell our listeners about the, the Utah law and what impact it might have on other states? Yeah, you bet. So this, uh, Greg is referring to the Cybersecurity Affirmative Defense Act that was signed about two weeks ago by Governor Cox. It was first proposed last year as potential new legislation was shelved, I'm going to assume because of the pandemic, but was brought before the legislature again this year. And as I said, passed. And it is this act that essentially creates affirmative defenses, and that's a legal term that basically just means just means that you 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 have a kind of get out of jail card. Right. Um, it, it will it creates a affirmative defense to certain types of claims that are asserted against an organization in the event of a data breach. So typically, and over the say the last ten years, when data breach litigation has emerged there are there are about 20 different legal theories that individuals and typically individuals that combine as a class have asserted against companies and the main yes the main claim is negligence and negligence is applicable across just about every industry and almost any type of incident Um, Negligence is the legal theory that basically says someone or an organization had a duty to do a certain thing. They breached that duty, and as a result, they caused an injury to someone that led to damages, led to something that they they should be should be compensated for. So uh, the simple uh, a simple case is a, a slip and fall inside a supermarket. Right. Um, you, uh, a person falls, gets injured, they will sue the supermarket because there was a wet floor right in front of the, the milk shelf. And uh, the assertion by that kind of a plaintiff would be, hey, I, I came to your store to buy stuff. You had a duty to at least make the store source safe. You didn't. You wet the floor right in front of the, the, the milk cabinet, the milk fridge, and I fell. You breached that duty. I suffered. There was a cause. There, there was an injury that caused by your your uh, inability to to meet your duty, and I've dam I've been damaged in X amount. So take that basic theory to data breach. Uh, data breaches that organizations suffer, and that has been the main claim asserted in the hundreds, probably thousands of data breach cases in the last decade. Well, Utah now has a statute that says if you do certain things. Um, then you um, have a defense to a negligence claim. Interesting. So if you have, and, and those certain things, I'll just broadly broadly say, and then you can you can maybe probe me on on, on what that means. Also, is one major thing 
that the, that the act says is if you have a written information security program, um, <clears throat> you can invoke as an affirmative defense this statute that just passed. Aha. Now, what, what does that really imply, though, Romaine? So if, if they have, let, let's, here, here's a scenario. Uh, a company has an information security policy that includes incident response. Um, good or not good, they've got it. They've taken the time to document it, and they uh, have started and have evidence of starting to uh, adhere to, say, CIS-20 or the NIST framework, or maybe they're beholden to PCI. What what does that do for them in terms of this affirmative defense? Okay, so if you, like any company, anyone who's, who's onboarded to a new job, they will go through an onboarding process, review an employee handbook, get trained on policies and procedures. And, and, and somewhere in there, there will be a section devoted to incidents. And often, at the very least, there will be an incident response plan that relates to, let's say someone has a health issue on at on premises or let's say someone in the in a warehouse gets injured falls right um that there will be an incident response plan designed to respond to that now what's becoming more and more common is an incident response plan designed to respond to cyber attacks or loss of data misuse of data theft of data and that's typically referred to as a cybersecurity incident response plan. Now, the WISP or the Written Information Security Program is separate and aside from that, and is something that organizations that have a network, have computers, um, which is which are most, uh, uh, right. should have as part of their overall corporate infrastructure structure. And a written information security program just relates to the security of that infrastructure. And a WISP relates to is, is the same thing. Um, this is this is a requirement. It's already been adopted in Massachusetts and and Oregon in slightly different contexts, but it's it's also federal, there are federal statutes that adopt this requirement as well. And the WISP under this new statute says that um, it, it must contain safeguards that are designed, and I'll just summarize quickly, protect the security of personal information, protect against anticipated threats or hazards mm -hmm. to the integrity of that personal information, and protect against a data breach of that personal information. Just very, very generally is what that WISP or that written information security program must include within it are those safeguards. Interesting. So does HB 80, what, what is the impact of, uh, of that if, uh, if a company uh, qualifies um, and, and are pretty much following the letter of, of that law, as it were? Uh, what, what's the impact on them with regards to data incidents? Well, it, it, the act is also referred to, uh, this is another legal term that applies in, in other legal contexts, but it's referred to as a safe harbor ah, statute. I've heard that. And, and, and I think that, 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 that phrase may 
may help people understand what the act does. It here here is a safe harbor. Here here is here is if you do these things, then you have a safe harbor from the potential litigation that can result if you don't do these things, or that has to this point typically resulted in in, in other situations. So um, the safe harbor means it, it it can help companies take an affirmative step to to lessen their risk exposure to cybersecurity incidents significantly. Um, it can also inform them on what insurance they might want to invest in because, hey, now they can say to their insurance broker, hey, we, we want to get cyber risk insurance or we want to alter our cyber risk insurance because now we've got the statute that we're going to comply with that we think is going to actually reduce our risk of exposure, at least for litigation expenses that uh, often result when there's been a data breach. It also grows a company or an organization's awareness about cybersecurity and its its importance. Utah is really leading the way uh, with with the enactment of this of this statute. It gives companies more certainty over their planning processes for cybersecurity incidents and also can inform their incident response planning and plans, things that should be reviewed annually. So I I think it's going to have a huge impact locally. Now, it's a a defense for Utah organizations and data breaches that happen here in Utah. It's 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 not a defense. Say if I'm in a California, right, consumer, and I and a company here in Utah suffers a data breach, and I sue them as a California consumer under the California Consumer Privacy Act. It's not going to defend absolutely against that claim, but you you still have the defense that hey, I wasn't negligent. I had in place a, re- a written information security program that followed a Utah statute guidelines on how to establish safeguards. And I did all that. And so you, you can still use the WISP or the program that you set up to comply with this act for your Utah purposes in those types of settings and, and be quite well positioned to defend yourself there. Oh, very good. Let, let's go back to that safe harbor for a minute. Tales from the Crypt. Have you ever worked with a an unnamed uh, particular client or heard of a story where uh, the FTC might have gotten involved and come down on a, a company because they didn't have any safe harbor evidence, safe harbor evidences, if, if that makes sense? I, I, I not, not, not in the safe harbor context. I, there's a recent case that the FTC published a decision on in December involving a mortgage analytics company that outsourced some of their document review um, requirements. They collect all of these real estate contracts, just massive amounts, and they had a vendor do some of the initial review of it. That vendor vendor did not... um, secure or have any adequate security in place for their review. 
processes for their review software and analytics. And as a result, uh, consumer information relating to transactions was exposed. It was something that hackers could go in and grab. It was something you and I could have went in and grabbed during a certain time period. And the FTC came down really hard on on that company, on the company that hired them. Not so much the company that had those flaws, but the actual company that hired them and said, your written information security program, your WISP, did not adequately address how you manage risks, security risks of your vendors. That's interesting because I see so many mortgage companies uh, that I've talked to in uh, various roles in cybersecurity um, solution uh, provision, and they, uh, I don't believe I've sold much uh, in my long career to any mortgage company, and yet they all should probably have cons- consultation and protections and, and all yeah. of that. Yes, yeah, they 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 are a uh, an important repository for some of the most sensitive information available. They collect socials, of course, financial information, um, um, salary information, you know, information that might not be uh, regulated per se, but is certainly still sensitive. What do you think, uh, Romaine, about companies that um, they say, well, and this is a, a true story. I uh, consulted with a company uh, that uh, their management came back and said, we're not going to implement the controls you recommended or the managed detection and response. We're just going to manage by cyber insurance policy. And if we get popped, we'll fix it. I felt like that was a head-in-the-sand approach that could get them in a lot of trouble because what what is your brand worth? Uh, what What is your... Um, tarnished reputation worth when you lose data and then you have to disclose that to your customers not to mention ftc and other regulatory things what's your opinion on that is it okay to manage by insurance or is it important to implement the controls in the wisp i i think yeah i I think insurance is is uh an important component but say maybe only one spoke of of the overall security wheel that a company should have and 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 thankfully the insurance marketplace is maturing quickly and it is becoming more segmented so that there is more selection for organizations but 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 in the first place any any robust insurance policy or insurer or broker you work with should be wanting to position you for the best available policy at the best at the, at the lowest price. And you better position yourself for that when you have a, a, a written information security program. And, and and so, you know, having to just fall back on insurance is, is, is dangerous. I get companies have to go through a lot of complicated analyses to just get to only being able to rely on that. But it's dangerous insofar as Data breaches and cybersecurity incidents are known for causing multifaceted litigation, you know, right. through regulators, consumers, employees, business partners. But really, to me, the biggest impacts of data breaches, cybersecurity incidents are the, is the, the interruption to business and uh, the harm to a business's reputation. 
And those things are hard to calculate and, and you, you may not be able to get insurance for um, and can have more impact than things I typically get involved in for just litigation and investigations. Interesting. So, so those business owners deciding to manage by cyber insurance policy aren't really thinking through the scenario that there could be disruption in their daily business flow. And I love the term Marsh uh, Romaine is of multifaceted <coughs> litigation. Um, one should implement a multifaceted cybersecurity program to help stem what could be multifaceted litigation. That's uh, an interesting uh, conclusion yes. to draw in there. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And that's what the Utah statute uh, is in. It's implicit in the Utah statute where they say, if you have a written information security program that includes safeguards that protect these things, and then they have a list of what things those safeguards should address, implied in that is, is this notion that if a company is going to go to the trouble of developing a WISP, they will realize they have a lot of vulnerabilities that need to be addressed and that the WISP is not a, hey, let's just get this done and put it on the portal and our policies and procedures are on the shelf, that this is a living, breathing document that needs to be updated if uh, annually at least, but probably more periodically, um, just given the changing circumstances that occur, the pandemic being a great example to our workplaces. Good advice. Good advice. Now, I get asked all the time, hey, when's Congress going to pass this comprehensive cyber uh, privacy regulation or uh, cybersecurity regulations? I always tell people, hey, not going to happen probably on the federal level. It was hard enough for them to get together to pass, uh, you know, uh, uh, the, the help for everyone. Uh, they couldn't agree yeah. on it. Uh, they're not going to agree on privacy and cybersecurity. Would you agree with that? Is it going to continue to be more of a state uh, legislature that's uh, providing us with privacy and cybersecurity guidelines, or will it ever ever happen on the federal level? Level. I, I um, I've been pessimistic in the past about um, our federal government being able to, as 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 you point out, become unified on this. Right. Um, I, I I'm a little more optimistic given just the severity of the recent Microsoft revelations and the SolarWinds cyber attack that occurred late last year also, because those are so massive and are probably gonna take at least a year to understand. I'm, I'm a little more optimistic that something might get passed in the wake of those, mm -hmm. but as to what that's gonna look like, um, I think it will be basic as, and the law says, you know, if the federal government passes a statute, it preempts state statutes that cover the same things. Ah, interesting. Basically. That's, that's the preemption doctrine under the constitution. However, if a federal statute is, doesn't cover certain things that state cybersecurity or data breach statutes mm -hmm. do then those statutes foreseeably could still be in existence. So I think the tough thing the, gov the federal government is going to have to do is, is, is divide, design a single statute that's comprehensive and that covers 
all aspects of cybersecurity, all industries, um, and all states. And that's a tough challenge because they've left it so late. And now we have 50 states that have data breach notification statutes that are probably going to have consumer protection statutes in the next few years. Virginia just passed one. Nevada updated theirs last year, kind of following on the heels of California. Washington did the same. Oregon, I think, did the same. Or Oregon, Texas, and other states are considering data privacy statutes as well. So that's a long way of saying I'm a little more optimistic, but not holding my breath. Yeah, it's almost like they're uh, yeah. too late to the party. This big Microsoft Exchange attack, uh, the the Solar Winds attack, and these were nation state attacks, as you know. And uh, right, it 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 just seems like uh, they're probably ought to be something that's better than it is today. But what you're saying, Romaine, is uh, it's going to continue to happen on on a state level, and 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 I would agree with that. Well, this has been a phenomenal. Uh, at this point, 48 minutes. Um, typically, we don't let the podcast go this long, but I think our listeners have really valued from some of the things that, you, that you've had to say here today. Um, if I were to ask you, Romaine, what is the key takeaway? What should the listeners uh, of today's podcast leave with? Uh, what what key element or elements would, would you say that would be? Um, first, know your data. Know your data that is on your electronic systems, where it's housed. That's a difficult exercise, I know, because so many, especially now, we have so many endpoints um, working remotely. But at least as an organization, know your data and then, and then just begin with some of the core security um, requirements. And, and I start out with that being... Um, um, an incident response plan relating to cybersecurity incidents. And then and then look to doing a risk assessment and then look to uh, updating, improving, or supplementing your written information security program that this new Utah statute has, has, has said would, would act as an defense to a data breach. Good advice. Very wise advice. Remain- and and one, one more thing. Oh, please. Get... Do a pen test. <laughs> you're, you're the man. Do a penetration test. <laughs> uh, who's a world-class pen testing company? Web check uh, security, know, yeah. right? <laughs> yes, that's right. Well, that's thank right. you. And, and all, in all seriousness, that's absolutely right, Greg, and, and I appreciate that service you've been able to provide. Great advice, Romaine. Um, how can our listeners reach you? Oh, um, Google, <laughs> of course. Um, I'm not... I don't have, so they can Google me at, at R Marshall, R as in Romaine, Marshall with two L's, at ATLLP.com, AT standing for Armstrong Teasdale. Uh, it's a law partnership, ATLLP.com. So R Marshall. Uh, happy to help. Yes. At ATLLP.com. That's right. And, uh, and uh, so if somebody calls or emails you, uh, what uh, what's the process? Uh, well, I, typically we can consult about what your cybersecurity needs might be or what you want to learn about what legal obligations you have relating to the data you're involved with. 
And, and so, as you mentioned at the outset, cybersecurity impacts basically any company that's on a network that has a computer. And that's every company, um, except for the, the very few that are fortunately able to function without that. But uh, we, just call me or email me, set up a time. I consult free, of course. I enjoy working through with a client what they need and scoping their setup and the legal the legal legal implications that that I may be able to assist them with. My 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 niche is very very narrow. I I don't do penetration tests like you do. I don't do forensic investigations. Um, I don't do the technical response to incidents. But as 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 a lawyer, I quarterback a lot of those processes for my clients. In other words. I will retain those types of technical consultants for my clients as I advise them about their legal needs in relation to the data they're involved with. So in my mind, Romain, if there is a data breach or a data incident, their first call really should be to you. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and that is, that, that is that is my daily. That's 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 my daily world. I, I I responding to those, and that's why at the outset you were able to reference hundreds of incidents, because I, I'm here to help people through those things, and it's it's my pleasure to do that. Fantastic. Well, Romaine, it's been fantastic having you here today. This has been a very informative and an excellent podcast. Thank you so much for your uh, participation. Let's do it again, shall we? I'd love to. Thank you very much. Very good. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. Vista thanks our sponsors, Vivint Smart Home and Nexus IT Consultants. For world-class security and home automation, call Vivint today at 1-800-570-1313. That's right, 1-800-570-1313. And don't forget, for White Glove Cybersecurity and IT Assistance, please contact Nexus IT at www.nexusitc.net or call them at 435-659-2533. And Earl, Travis, and the folks there, they'll hook you up and fix you up and get you cyber prepared. Today's music has been provided by Suit Up Soldier and can be downloaded on Spotify, Apple Music, and all other popular platforms where music is streamed. Stay tuned and join us for our next podcast, which inevitably will occur in the next couple of weeks.